Good morning, everyone. Uh, we have been reading about David's life together from the books of First and Second Samuel, <clears throat> and this is where we are in the uh, in the story. David has finally become the king of all of the tribes of Israel, uniting the nation. Uh, he has established a new capital city uh, in Jerusalem. And with great celebration, he's moved the Ark of the Covenant, which was the, the physical symbol of God's power and presence. He's moved that into the tabernacle in Jerusalem. It is uh, a rare moment of repose in David's life, and it gives him a chance to come up with an idea. So I'm going to read uh, about that from 2 Samuel 7. You can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of, from, uh, of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be the prince over my people Israel. And I have taken you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask, uh, as always, that you'd use this uh, word 
that we've read and heard together, the story that we're going to talk about um, for a little while together, that you would use it to show us your great love and grace for us, that you would show us um, the grace and love that you have for us in Jesus and that you change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I have to say uh, that I hope that no one uh, ever requires me to make a list of all of the ideas that I have ever had uh, that sounded really good to me, um, but ended up being really dumb ideas. Um, Like balancing on top of a a flimsy chain link fence and uh, telling my friend, just slide the couch over the railing to me. That was a very bad idea. Uh, or, or like telling uh, my wife, Allison, hey, don't, don't worry about it, Allison. I'm sure that we will use this deep fryer that I just bought all of the time. I'm sure we're going to use it all the time. Because I just had to make my own wings one Super Bowl. Not a great idea for us. I mean, if I had to make a list of all of my bad ideas, it would be really long. And I would never want anyone to read it. But I am... Uh, really glad that we get to read about David's bad idea. I mean, not because it tells us much about David, to be honest. I mean, we've seen him do things like this before, and we'll see him do things like this again before we're finished with his story. I mean, he has bad ideas, just like you and I have bad ideas. But I'm glad that we get to read about it, um, because we get to see how God responds to it. And the way that God responds to it tells us a lot about him and how he operates with people like us. And the effects of God's response to David continue to be very, very good for us and for the whole world right up until this very moment. So the storyteller begins with this uh, snapshot. The king lived in his house and the Lord gave him rest from his enemies. It's not quite a moment of leisure, uh, but it is an important pause in his life for sure. And the overall impression of this snapshot is one of of settledness. And that's not wholly unwelcome in David's life, given all the running and hiding and fighting that he has been doing in his life for the last 20 years or so. He has enough space, enough leisure to be able to think. And so he turns to his guy, Nathan who is a prophet and also clearly an advisor to David, who we have uh, never heard about before. Now, it turns out that Nathan is really important in David's story, but he kind of appears here out of nowhere. And to be honest, his first moments on the scene are not his finest moments. So David turns to his guy, Nathan. He says, see, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God It dwells in a tent. And that's an absolutely true statement. You might remember from a couple of weeks ago that uh, David's house was uh, built as a gift. It was built as a tribute from the king of Tyre who sent cedar and masons and carpenters to build it. And it, it must have been a pretty amazing house. And you can imagine David out on the balcony of his great house looking over at the tent flaps of the tabernacle you know, kind of flapping in the breeze, all raggedy and dusty. 
Nathan, uh, he doesn't even wait for David to finish his thought. I mean, I guess it was implied. David wants to build God a temple. I mean, if he has a great house, then God should have a great house too. And from one way of looking at things, you know, this is not unreasonable at all. I mean, lots of other ancient Near Eastern cultures had temples. And the truth is, a permanent structure could be a beautiful, stabilizing thing for a nation in a way that a tent never could. So, you know, Nathan hears this and he just tells David, look, man, do everything that's in your heart. God's with you. This sounds like a great idea to me. But then old old Nathan (laughs) gets a word that night. God comes to him and speaks with him. And it just so happens to be the longest recorded direct address that God has given since he gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. It's a pretty big deal. And so God tells Nathan that he should go back to David and that he should start with a question. And the question that he should ask David is this. Would you build me a house to live in? I mean, you you can feel the weight of that one. (laughs) Would you build me a house to dwell in? And you can picture Nathan, you know, hat in hand, kind of sheepishly reporting this to David while the regret starts creeping up the back of both of their necks. God says through Nathan a couple of different ways. I never asked you for a house. I never asked anybody for a house. I never said a word to anyone about a house. In fact, God says in verse 7, I've been moving in a tent for my dwelling. I have moved with all the people of Israel. God wants David to know, and he wants us to know too, that he is the God who is with his people wherever they are, wherever they go. He is the God who dwells with us. And I think this is a really important thing for all of us to know, perhaps in particular if we're checking out church or what Jesus has to say or if we want to know what the God of the Bible is really like, this is an important thing for us to know. He is not a distant God. He's not a God who's off somewhere busy with other things and content to just check in with us from time to time. Our God is a God who is absolutely committed to us. Our God is a God who wants to be in a relationship with us that is vital and true and living. Our God is a God who is happy to make his home with us in all of the dust and dirt and trouble and pain and questions and all of the joy and celebration and wonder and work that we carry around with us wherever we go. He wants to be with us in all of that. And we can bank on that. He is here right now. He is here with you and with me. 
And I know there's a lot of stuff in life that makes you think maybe that isn't true. There's a lot of stuff in life and in what's around us that tempts us to believe that maybe that isn't the case. And I'm just saying, church, don't ever give in to the temptation to believe that that isn't true. And this truth about God finds its fullest expression, of course, when Jesus comes. As the Apostle John said it so beautifully, the Word became flesh and dwelled with us. He tented with us. God is immediate with us. And church, his, his immediacy with people like us provides this undergirding flesh and blood reality of comfort and joy and peace for us. And that is the absolute truth. And what we need to do uh, through scripture reading, through solitude, through prayer, through the habits of our life together, what we need to do is to make a habit of practicing and celebrating his presence with us. I mean, if we would do that as a church, as, as a people, as families, as individuals, that would strengthen us as a people. So this is the way that God approaches David's idea. You're, you're going to build me a house? And because that's God's approach to David's idea, you get the distinct impression um, that David has imagined that he would be doing God a favor if he built him a house. And of course, that isn't how favor works <laughs> in God's way of doing things. And that is very, very good news. And so God says a little bit about that too. In verse 8, he says, I, I took you from the pasture, David. And from that moment on, I'm, I'm the one who has been with you wherever you went. And I'm the one who has cut off your enemies before you. I'm the one who made you the prince over my people Israel. The favor has been all one way, man. And church, <laughs> that is the meaning of grace. That is the meaning of grace. This is how our life with God as followers of Jesus always works. The grace, the favor, it flows one way from him to us. It starts with him calling us. It starts with him forgiving us. It continues with him healing us and making us to look more like Jesus in it will consummate when we and the whole world are made new and we finally get to sit down and feast with him. He works for our good from the beginning and forever. And I know you hear that. I know, you know, we hear that and we probably know it with our minds. I mean, it's like Church 101. But the truth is that often our hearts skate really close to believing that maybe we have to earn God's grace or maybe we have to do stuff to keep it. I know mine does. And you know, a lot of times I don't just skate close to the edge of that. I fall right in. And when you and I, uh, when you and I do that, we move into this whole cycle of, of debt and obligation and frantic running around and pretending and faking it and manipulation and anxiety that we were never made for. And when we fall into that cycle of debt and obligation, it makes us tired and 
scared and judgmental and angry. And uh, in a painful but really true irony, <laughs> it actually makes us harder, it makes it harder for us to love God and harder for us to love our neighbors with freedom and with joy. And so, like David, we probably cannot hear this enough that God is the good shepherd and he came looking for us to bring us home. <laughs> he, he is the one who is working in us to make us look more like Jesus. He is the one who is working in us to help us put away old harmful ways of living. He is the one who grows us into being able to love him and love our neighbors. We don't earn this. We receive it. We receive it through the open hands of repentance and faith. And so God reminds David about how grace has worked in his life. And the amazing thing is that he isn't even finished talking with David about his grace. In verse 11, in verse 11, this is what God says to the guy who wanted to build a house for God. This is what he says, I'm going to build a house for you. God flips the whole thing around. And when God says house, what he means is dynasty. He promises David that he's going to make his kingdom sure forever, a throne unshaken. He says there's going to be a son of David over God's people forever. Man, that is grace on top of grace for David and for sure for us too. Because David's most important role as a king, I know he had lots of stuff to do. All the kings had lots of stuff to do, but their most important role Along uh, with all of David and all of the other kings that came after him, the most important role was to be a witness to God's kingship over his people. And so this promise of an unshaken kingdom, it's a pretty amazing promise to make to a guy like David, but the riches of it fall on our heads. As the Apostle Paul uh, put it in the New Testament lesson that we heard, this is the good news of God concerning his son <laughs> descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. I know David, you know, David in that moment, he couldn't have possibly have worked out what this was all going to look like. But the truth is that David's kingship was simply a placeholder for Jesus the true king, who, who rules over us in the whole world with power and with grace. And so David's response to all of this, um, not surprisingly, is to practice and to celebrate the presence of this good God. In verse 18, uh, David ambles over to the tabernacle. And he sits down in front of God, probably in front of the ark of God. And he quiets down. And like Mary in the gospel lesson that we heard, he reorients himself to the one thing necessary. 
to the good portion. And he asks his own question. Who am I? Who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? David recognizes the lavish grace of God, the grace that he didn't have to earn, the grace that he could have never earned. And then he utters the only words that are possible, really, when you realize that you're living under the reign of God's grace. He says, therefore, you're great, O God. There's none like you. There's no one beside you. In church, that's you and me every day. <laughs> called back to the one thing necessary, called back again to the good portion. Not earners, receivers. Freed up to love and to serve wherever God puts us and wherever God calls us. And part of us growing up in our faith, part of us maturing in our faith together as followers of Jesus means that we will make a habit to practice and to celebrate the presence of God in our lives every day and to faithfully wait to see where that might take us. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask um, that you would help us to see again and to believe again. Do whatever you need to do in our lives. Use whatever means you need to use in our lives to help us to see again and to believe again that we are not earners. You don't, you don't ask any favors of us. That you have lavished your grace on us in Jesus. Help us to believe it so that we could grow up in our faith and mature in our faith and so that through us you can love this broken world around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.